And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to reconnect man with God, restoring the relationship that we were each created for. The life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find in the Bible. Collectively, they're known as the Gospels. And today, we're going to begin in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be doing some jumping around. If you looked at your outlines, you'll see we're going to be in three of the Gospels. And that's just because we want to make sure we cover everything as thoroughly as we can. And as we pick up our study today, it is the night of Jesus' arrest, the day before he will die on the cross for our sins in our place. In our last study, we saw Jesus appear before Annas and then the high priest Caiaphas for a trial that was illegal in every sense, a violation of both the laws of God in the scriptures and the laws of the Jews that they had made themselves and written in the Talmud. And as we ended last week's study, Jesus was being spat upon, blindfolded and punched by members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious Jewish council based in Jerusalem that had organized this sham of an arrest and this illegal trial. A secondary storyline that is playing out is the failure of Peter's courage. The most outspoken, confident, and oldest of Jesus' disciples When earlier that very same night, Jesus had told his disciples they would all stumble that very evening because of him, Peter had infamously replied, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Last week we read how another disciple, John, followed Jesus to the house of Annas and got access to the inner courtyard where Jesus was being interrogated and tried. This happened because John knew the servants at Annas' house, and so he had a female servant who was keeping the door let Peter into the inner courtyard as well. And as Peter passed this servant girl by, she asked him, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And that was Peter's first denial. We're also gonna be following that storyline as we jump into the text today. We're gonna begin in Luke 22, verse 58. We read, and after a little while, another saw him, speaking of Peter, and said, you also are of them. In other words, you're also one of Jesus' disciples. But Peter said, man, I am not. Matthew's gospel tells us that he denied it with an oath. That's denial number two. Verse 59, then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. What's happening is that Peter's accent is giving him away. And when they say he's a Galilean, they're basically saying he's got that redneck accent. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And Matthew and Mark say that Peter, quote, began to curse and swear. What's the difference between cursing and swearing? Well, one is cussing, but the other, we're told, is making oaths. And so Peter was literally saying things along the lines of, may my soul be damned if I'm lying. That's what Peter is doing. This is a complete and utter disowning of Jesus to the greatest degree possible. And if you're someone who is not convinced about the idea of eternal security, I would encourage you to dive into this because at no point in this does Peter lose his salvation. Now come some of the most, in my opinion, gut-wrenching verses in the whole Bible. It says immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out 
and wept bitterly. Can you imagine? Jesus turns and looks Peter right in the eyes at the exact moment that Peter's failure is crystallized by the rooster crowing after he denies Jesus for the third time. Peter is overwhelmed with shame and flees the courtyard weeping. Do you remember what else Jesus had told Peter earlier that very evening? He had said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Peter, Satan has asked my father for permission to test you, to try you, to press you, to crush you, and permission has been granted. But he also told Peter, but, but, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And Peter's reaction upon hearing the rooster crow, immediately weeping, tells us that it wasn't his faith that failed, but his courage. And when Jesus looked at Peter, I don't think it was a look of disappointment, but rather compassion, because Jesus wasn't surprised. We know that. He told Peter this was coming. He called it hours in advance. This was a look of compassion because that's the way that Jesus looks at you and I when we mess up. He's not angry with us because he's not surprised by our behavior. He's heartbroken for us the way that any good parent doesn't want to see their child go through pain. The Lord doesn't enjoy ever watching us go through pain. And we bring unnecessary pain into our lives when we embrace sin. We welcome the destructive power of sin into our lives and it creates hurt. Jesus looks at Peter with compassion and we all know the truth. Compassion breaks a man far more quickly than condemnation. Condemnation tends to harden a heart but compassion will break it right open. And Peter was broken in that moment. Historians tell us that for years after this event, Every time Peter would get up to preach in public anywhere where there were Jews in the audience, someone in the crowd would start calling out, cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo, from the back every time he preached. Can you imagine being a preacher thinking, I hope I remember my notes, and someone says, just remember you're a giant screw-up every time you get up to preach. Can you imagine how he felt waking up every morning with the sunrise and hearing what? A rooster crow. I can tell you exactly how he felt. I know exactly how he felt. He felt thankful. He felt grateful as he woke up a forgiven man, a saved man, an adopted son of God and recalled, I have no doubt to mind the words of the prophet Jeremiah, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new, what? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, that's how you move on from a catastrophic failure in your walk with Jesus. Because Satan will do everything he can to remind you of your failures because Satan wants to get you bound up in guilt and condemnation because if he can do that, you will shrink back into the shadows of isolation and secrecy where Satan is most powerful and can most easily tear you apart. Or, or you can be honest you can confess your sin and experience the forgiveness and grace of Jesus and then every time Satan brings it up, you can use it as a reminder to thank the Lord that you're forgiven. To thank Jesus for dying, to purchase that forgiveness. And then when that sin and failure is brought up by the enemy, it will only cause you to love Jesus more and become more grateful to him for your salvation. That's what Peter chose to do. How do we know? 
Because after the resurrection, he didn't shrink back. He didn't retreat to the shadows. The man who was too afraid to admit even knowing Jesus to a servant girl stood up in front of thousands in the city where the men had murdered Jesus just weeks earlier and he preached the gospel specifically telling them they needed to repent for murdering Jesus. And Peter would go on to lead the Jerusalem church in one of the greatest ages of persecution the world has ever known and goes down in history as one of the most effective ministers of the faith of all time. That's how I know Peter didn't live the rest of his life racked by guilt and shame, but instead chose every reminder of this greatest of failures to cause him to thank Jesus that he's forgiven and to love Jesus even more, that he could be set free from the burden of that sin. Your sins and failures will be brought up by Satan. You can count on that. It's an absolute certainty. And when they're brought up, you'll either run into the darkness and guilt and shame or you'll run toward the light of Jesus with fresh gratitude and thankfulness for your forgiveness. So when your past is brought up by anyone, be honest about it. And be honest about the grace and forgiveness of Jesus that has set you free from it. Write this down. The best way to move on from past failures is to let them serve as reminders of God's grace, kindness, and forgiveness. The best way to move on from past failures is to let them serve as reminders of God's grace, kindness, and forgiveness. When Satan brings them up, you don't need to put your hands in your ears and say, la, 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 la. As a Christian who's forgiven by Jesus, you can say, Absolutely everything you're bringing up is true. I'm guilty of all of it and I've been forgiven of all of it because Jesus loves me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Let it be a reminder of the goodness of God. Jesus was kept in a cell at the home of Caiaphas that night And the next morning, the illegal trial resumed, verse 66. As soon as it was day, probably between 5 and 6 a.m., the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. This council was the Sanhedrin. Around 70 men would have been there as members of the Sanhedrin. The night before had been the real and illegal trial, so to create the pretense, the appearance of a legal trial, they reconvened that next morning to sentence Jesus without acknowledging everything that had happened the night before, even though that's when everything had really been arranged, planned, and determined. Saying, verse 67, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then, underline the word then, are you then the son of God? You see, first they asked him if he was Messiah, the Christ, and Jesus responded by saying, there's no point in me answering, it's not gonna change anything, but I will say this, the day will come when you will see me sitting at the right hand of the Father in my full glory. And that's a reference again to Daniel 7 that we talked about in detail in our last study. And the Sanhedrin understand what Jesus is implying, which is why they respond by asking, are you then the Son of God? So they're saying, if you're referencing Daniel 7, Jesus, which is a passage about the Son of God, are you then claiming to be him? Are you claiming to be the Son of God? And that's all recorded in the Gospels just so there's no confusion whatsoever that Jesus is making the claim to be Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Lest anyone could say, well, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they didn't expect the Messiah would be the Son of God. Jesus makes it absolutely clear he's claiming to be the Son of God, God in the flesh. So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. In other words, he says, you said it yourselves, verse 71. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. As we mentioned last week, it was illegal under Jewish law to condemn anyone based on their own testimony during a trial. But here they are doing just that. And in case there's any confusion, the crime they're claiming Jesus is guilty of 
is blasphemy, claiming equality with God, because they've told us themselves all they needed to hear was Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man that Daniel 7 speaks of, and they said that's all we need to hear, he's guilty. At this point, we're gonna flip back to Matthew chapter 27, so turn there, Matthew 27, for a few verses that are recorded only in that gospel, and we're gonna pick it up in Matthew 27, verse three. Verse three, it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he, Jesus, had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas, of course, had betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders for the sum of 30 pieces of silver, the standard price of a slave. Verse four, saying, underline this, I have sinned by betraying innocent Blood, innocent blood. Judas, unbeknownst to him, is declaring the reason why Jesus was the only one who could die in our place for our sins. Jesus was the only one who was innocent, completely without sin. And think about this, if there was ever a person who would have wanted to find fault with Jesus, It would have been Judas who in this moment is in a desperate state of wanting to appease his guilty conscience. And Judas could have said, well, I saw him be a jerk to a guy one time or I saw him be mean to a kid once. But Judas couldn't find anything to appease his guilty conscience. He knew Jesus was completely innocent of what? Anything, everything, the whole deal. Innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, that's your problem, Judas. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. It's very easy to read all that and think, oh, Judas was repentant, so why couldn't he be saved? Maybe he's in heaven right now. Judas wasn't repentant. He was remorseful. He was feeling the sting of his own guilt, but he was not genuinely repentant because genuine repentance does what? It always drives you to Jesus. Always, always. The Bible tells us there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but Judas's remorse was of a different kind as demonstrated by his suicide. It was the remorse of a man realizing he had lined up on the wrong side and had made an enemy of the wrong man. Verse six, but the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. By their own admittance here, these 30 pieces of silver were tainted because it was blood money, dirty money that had been used by them to bribe Judas to betray Jesus. But being the legalists that they are, they still have the nerve to say, so it wouldn't be appropriate to use the money for you know, temple expenses. Verse seven, and they consulted together. They probably bring in a scribe who's an expert in the minutia of the law and an accountant and they say, well, what can we use the money for? And bought with them, so they bought with the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury strangers in. So the scribe probably says, while we can't use the money for ministry purposes, we can use it to buy property for future use. And the accountant says, as we all know, the temple bears the responsibility of burying those who die in Jerusalem whose bodies go unclaimed, so let's spend the money on a field that we can use in the future when we need more room for those unclaimed bodies. And they find a field just like that. It's a potter's field, which would have been a field that a potter, probably a a prominent one who made a large volume of pottery, would have used as his own personal dump. So any broken pottery, any pieces that didn't meet his standard would just be thrown there and the ground would be full of sharp bits of pottery. It would be useless. You couldn't farm there. You couldn't really walk there. It was just a dump, basically. Verse eight, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day, the field paid for with blood money. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
That's quoting some prophecies of Jeremiah's in the Old Testament that were recorded hundreds and hundreds of years before these events unfolded. And I'd love to take the time to dig into that right now, but I I just can't or we're never going to get to the resurrection. And we want to get to the resurrection. I encourage you to spend some time diving into those verses this week and just marveling at the incredible detail that is listed in those prophecies. And while we don't have time to do it today, I decided what I'm going to do is this week in the email newsletter, I'm just going to do some bonus content and I'm going to dive into that a little bit and explain where those passages are and answer some questions that if you study it, you will have. So look for that Wednesday or Thursday this week. If you're not subscribed to our email newsletter, do it on your connection card so you don't miss out on that content. Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles ahead now to John 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 18, and we'll pick things up in verse 28, John 18, verse 28. We read, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. So the whole Sanhedrin, to show that this is a big deal, take Jesus to the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, where the reigning governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, was staying during the feast of Passover. Pilate had been having a rough go of things as the governor of Judea, and as you study history, you'll discover that being governor of Judea was unquestionably one of the most difficult and miserable assignments in the Roman Empire. The Jews were an incredibly difficult powder keg of a people to govern on behalf of the Romans. When he had first arrived in Jerusalem with a military escort, they were carrying some of those long poles that you would have seen in textbooks that have the the eagle based on top of them, the symbol of the Roman military. And so they come marching into town as the military escort of Pontius Pilate, the new governor, and they make their way across the Temple Mount as they march through. Well, unbeknownst to him, the Jews consider statues and carvings of animals to be idols. If you're not aware, they have a problematic history with a certain golden calf that is another story for another day. So related to that, any carvings of animals were considered to be idols. And so this guy, a Gentile, unclean Roman, marches across the Temple Mount with this idol of an animal and they consider this to be a giant abomination and this thing goes down his first day in office causing a riot to break out in Jerusalem. The military has to be mobilized and 10,000 rioters are herded by the Roman soldiers into an amphitheater where Pontius Pilate shows up to stamp his claim to power by saying, You guys are all going to be beheaded for creating so much trouble. And the rioters respond by telling him, if you're going to behead us, then behead us. But we're not going to stop protesting your abomination. And if you kill us, 10,000 more will rise up immediately and take our place. And you know what? Pilate backed down because starting a war is not a good look for a diplomat in your first day in office. But the situation cost him some serious political points. He had lost a lot of his cachet by appearing weak in front of the Jews. When the Roman emperor got word of what had happened, he sent a message to Pilate saying basically, get your junk together or we're going to recall you to Rome and stick you with a desk job. Later on, Pilate decided, you know what? I'm going to do something nice for the Jews to get them on my side. I'm going to bring water to the dry regions of their country. And he set about accomplishing this, and he did do it by building this ingenious system of aqueducts across Israel. The problem is how he chose to fund this infrastructure project. See, he went and borrowed the funds from the temple treasury, thinking the people would appreciate his initiative. They didn't, and it was, guess what, another abomination to take from the temple treasury for government projects. All that to say, to set the scene for you, that Pilate is under tremendous political pressure at this point. He cannot afford another failure in his governmental assignment. He needs to avoid any further issues with the Jewish citizenry. The reason that the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate 
is because they needed the Romans to execute him. In 6 AD, one of the rights that the Romans had taken from the Jews was their right to carry out capital punishment, the death penalty. Only the Romans held that authority. But in order to get the Roman governor to sentence Jesus to death, we're gonna see that they're gonna need to come up with a reason that the Roman governor is gonna agree with. So in other words, any of their petty sort of Jewish laws and customs, he's not gonna care about. He's gonna need a reason to execute Jesus that he should care about as a Roman. And of course, there's something even bigger going on through all of this. The Old Testament scriptures had prophesied in great detail hundreds of years earlier that Jesus would die by crucifixion specifically. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 all contain amazing examples of the kinds of prophecies I'm referring to. The Jews did not execute the death penalty via crucifixion, but rather by stoning. So in order for Jesus to be crucified and fulfill Bible prophecy, he had to be killed by the Romans. And when you examine the scriptures though, you'll find several examples, even in the gospels, of the Jews being willing to disobey Rome and take the death penalty into their own hands. Remember they were ready to stone to death the woman caught in adultery? Remember the mob that tried to throw Jesus off a cliff that one time? And Paul the apostle, then a young Saul the Pharisee, will later hold the coats of the Jewish religious leaders as they stone Stephen, the first martyr, to death. So why don't they just kill Jesus themselves? Well, it's Passover. Every able-bodied Jewish male within a 15-mile radius of the city of Jerusalem was required by law to come into the city. Based upon the number of lambs that were sacrificed according to the Jewish historian Josephus, we can estimate pretty accurately there were at least two and a half million people in the city of Jerusalem for Passover. And if you go and look at the size of the city back at this time, this would have been an incredibly densely packed situation. Among those two and a half million are at least several hundred thousand who still really like Jesus. The members of the Sanhedrin don't want to risk their popularity with the people by taking on the burden of being the ones to execute Jesus. So they think to themselves, the way to get around this is to have the Romans do it for us. And that created an interesting situation because you had both the Jews and the Gentiles coming together to murder Jesus. You had the Jews scheming and plotting and the Romans carrying out the physical act. Are the Jews Christ killers? Yes. As are Canadians, as are Americans, and everybody else. It was your sin and my sin that necessitated Jesus going to the cross and giving his life there. We all put him there. We all bear equal responsibility. Another note on God's control of this whole situation is to know this, that Pontius Pilate didn't normally hang out in Jerusalem. His main HQ as governor of Judea was in Caesarea Philippi, which was this beautiful Mediterranean seaside town with a lovely beach, and it was a far better, more luxurious, less tense and taxing place to live than Jerusalem. But Passover was a time when Jewish nationalism would always be at an annual high. And you'll recall that the Feast of Passover celebrated God liberating the Jews from their Egyptian oppressors. It was sort of like their 4th of July. There was this surge of nationalism. And if there was ever going to be an uprising or rebellion against the Romans, there would be a good chance that it would happen during the time of Passover. So every Passover, the governor would come in and make sure that he was in the city of Jerusalem that weekend, that the fortress Antonius was fully stocked with Roman soldiers so that if any issues broke out, it could be very quickly and decisively dealt with. And so Pilate was in Jerusalem so that Jesus could be brought to him so that the Jews could ask him to execute him by crucifixion on the Passover 
so that all of these prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures could come together and be perfectly fulfilled. We keep reading, it says, but they themselves, so the members of the Sanhedrin, did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Under Jewish oral law, which were the laws that the Jews themselves had invented, as opposed to the laws that God gave them, a Jew who went into a Gentile house would become ceremonially unclean. If they had become ceremonially unclean, they would have had to go through purification rituals and wait a certain amount of time before they could be declared clean again, and that would have made them miss out on all the Passover festivities. And John adds this detail because he knows that you can't help but shake your head over the fact that they're concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean even though they're right in the middle of arranging the murder of the most innocent man who ever walked the face of the earth. That's just messed up. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So why are you bringing him to me? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. It's a pretty cocky attitude. In other words, they're saying, you know he's guilty because we're the ones bringing him to you. Then Pilate said to them, will you take him and judge him according to your law? I don't want anything to do with this. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. What saying of Jesus is this? Back in John 12, Jesus had said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And John, the author of the gospel, tells us, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. As we said, the Jewish method of execution was stoning. When Jesus said he would be lifted up from the earth, he's making it clear that he would not die crumpled over, bent over as a man would die when he was stoned to death, but he would die by being lifted up, which only happens when the method of execution is crucifixion, where a man is raised up on a cross. Luke's gospel tells us that the members of the Sanhedrin told Pilate, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It's another lie. On the issue of taxes, Jesus famously told the people to do what? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. It also says they told Pilate, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So if you didn't notice, they've added some additional charges against Jesus that haven't been mentioned up to this point. If we go back and look at the proceedings, they arrested Jesus for allegedly threatening to destroy the temple. They charged Jesus with blasphemy for claiming to be Messiah, God in the flesh. Now they're demanding the Romans execute Jesus for sedition treason against the Roman state because he's allegedly been stirring up the Jews across Israel to not pay taxes to Rome. Mark's gospel tells us, and the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? This is the one charge that Pilate is actually concerned about because it would have implied that Jesus may be challenging the political authority of Rome. Verse 34, Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Are there reliable witnesses telling you this, Pilate? hinting at the fact that this whole thing is a sham. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So Pilate deflects the question by saying, I'm not a Jew, Jesus. I don't care about your blasphemy laws. We're only talking because your people brought me to me. So what have you done? Jesus will now address Pilate's only point of concern. Is Jesus a political threat to Rome? Verse 36, Jesus answered, underline this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So in other words, if my kingdom was of this world, 
those who follow me would be using worldly means to advance my kingdom so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate, I'm not competing with the kings of the world. I'm not out for political or military power. I'm playing on a whole nother level. Not even the end of my earthly life will end my kingdom. So the good news for you, Pilate, is that my disciples and I pose no political threat to you. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a good reminder for us, especially when it comes to our conduct on social media. You know, nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus say, woe unto you, for I was attacked with illogical online arguments and you did not post a single meme in my defense. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Which means until Jesus returns to rule and reign on the earth, we're not supposed to be advancing the kingdom of Jesus on the earth using earthly means. Jesus said, the reason my disciples aren't fighting you militarily is because that's not what my kingdom is right now. My kingdom is spiritual right now. It's not physical or political yet. It will be during the millennium. And so we need to be very careful that we don't think that we're supposed to be spreading the kingdom of God somehow by playing by the world's rules. Jesus would say, It's on a whole nother level. We're not seeking political power, military power. We're not seeking to win arguments by shaming people. There's something far more profound going on in the kingdom of God. Pilate answered, therefore, and said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. You said it. The reality is that Pilate probably thought that the Jewish religious leaders had bought him a crazy person. That's probably what he thought. Jesus was standing in front of him claiming to be the king of this otherworldly kingdom. And so Pilate's thought is most likely, you guys need to just give this man his meds and let him go home, but he's not a threat to Rome. He's telling me he's the king of an invisible kingdom. And he's told me specifically that because his kingdom is invisible, it's not gonna be the cause of any fighting whatsoever. You want me to execute this guy? What's wrong with you? Jesus continues speaking to Pilate and he says, for this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What a comfort that promise is when you think about it. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who desires the truth, everyone who seeks the truth, Everyone who would ever be willing to receive the truth will. They will. No one who wants to know the truth will miss the truth. No one. That's the promise of Jesus. There will be nobody in hell who will have the testimony, if only somebody had told me, then I would have believed. Anyone who ever would have believed will be in heaven. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, (laughs) what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again. This is a, a tragic and cavalier attitude that we see so much of in our world today. What is truth? There's no such thing as truth. All truth is relative. Truth is irrelevant. Many who claim to be interested in the truth make statements and ask questions but do not truly seek answers. And we find that like Pilate, they may be asking questions, but they're rhetorical questions. They're not seeking an answer. I wonder what Jesus would have said if Pilate had asked him sincerely, Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? I think we know the answer. Jesus would have told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate would have been invited into the kingdom. But Pilate didn't ask that question with sincerity. Only mockery rooted in philosophical vanity. We keep reading and it says, He, Pilate, went out again to the Jews and said to them, underline this, I find no fault in him at all. I find no fault in him at all. 
Judas confessed that Jesus was innocent blood. And here the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, makes his own confession. I find no fault in him at all. Indeed, no one can because he has no faults. You can find fault in me. That's no great accomplishment. You can find fault in our church. It's it's not hard to do. You can find fault in Christian history. It's all over the place. You can find fault in any Christian or any group of Christians you will ever encounter, but there's one you can never find fault with, Jesus. I was thinking about this this week. You know, one of the things I love is that despite all the lies and all the myths that have been propagated about Jesus on the internet and everywhere else, you know what's amazing about Jesus? There is no version of history, even among the most devout skeptics. Think about this. There's no version of history, even among the most devout skeptics, in which Jesus was less than a good man. That's the absolute worst that even those who don't believe in Jesus have to say about him. That's the absolute worst they have to say about him is that he was merely a good man. There's no version of secular history where Jesus was a bad man, a liar, a thief, a murderer. There's there's no version of that. And I find that astounding because the history of Muhammad is clear and known and documented in Islam's own writings. The history of the Buddha is known It's known that he walked out on his wife and kid in the name of pursuing enlightenment. It's known that the Buddha's own son didn't become a Buddhist because he hated his father for leaving him. Every other major religion and figure, there is condemning evidence that they were not good people, that they had faults. The worst that those who hate Jesus have to say about him is that he was merely a good man. That's astonishing to me. 2,000 years later, that's the worst they can say about him. He was only a good man because Jesus had and he has no faults. He has no flaws. If you put your faith in anyone else, you will be disappointed. Put your faith in me, you will be disappointed. But Jesus will never disappoint you and he will never leave you disillusioned. Anyone who's ever left the church because they were disappointed by people, pastors or organizations, let me tell you the truth, let me be blunt here. Even if this was you, if you've ever done that, if that crushed you so bad that you walked away from church for a few years, you were putting your faith in the wrong things. Put your faith in Jesus. People will always disappoint you. Newsflash, you will always disappoint people. Jesus will never disappoint you. Put your faith in him. When I was looking this week at one of my guilty pleasures, which is Christian memes on Instagram, it was so perfect because yesterday I was following this one, and I follow it because it's funny, but it's this Catholic meme account on Instagram. <laughs> and they had a meme, this blew me away. We were talking about Peter having the, to deal with the cock-a-doodle-doo thing and people making fun of him. This blew my mind, right? 2,000 years later, on my feed is a meme. And the, <laughs> the meme says, things that disappear when you need them the most. Picture of your car keys, picture of your cell phone, picture of your wallet, picture of St. Peter. <laughs> 2,000 years later and Peter is still being trolled for denying Jesus. It absolutely blew my mind. And it's incredible when you look at the life he went and lived after that. It's incredible. I hope that you are inspired by that and that if you're wrestling with past failures, that you will choose to allow them to fill you with gratitude toward Jesus. Don't take on a robe of shame. 
Put on the garment of praise because you're forgiven. Peter was given away by his accent. He was from Galilee and when you belong to Jesus, it's, it's gonna change you on the deepest of levels. You're gonna have an accent, not just in your speech, but about your whole life and it's gonna give you away in public. You know, you and I are never really gonna fit in in the world. We're never really gonna be thought of as being cool because we're not of this world. Heaven is our home. And the problem with trying to fit in with the world, the problem with trying to be cool is you're a Christian. You're a Christian. And the Bible calls us sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. And like Peter, it's possible to find yourself in a great place of misery where you've got too much of Jesus in you to enjoy the world but too much of the world in you to enjoy Jesus. Man, is that a miserable place to be. You got Jesus in you. And so all the sin that the world has to offer just leaves you feeling miserable and dirty and ugh. You can't enjoy all that stuff. But you're not totally close to Jesus, so you're not enjoying him either. If that's you, if you belong to Jesus but you're not walking with him, then I know you're miserable. I know you're miserable. And the solution, as we say over and over again, is to abide with Jesus. There will be one disciple who through all this will do that. He was in the inner courtyard with Jesus, John the apostle. And when Jesus is on the cross, we will find John at the feet of Jesus. The way to enjoy Jesus is to stay close to him. If you don't, you'll be halfway between Jesus and the world and nothing will make you happy. You'll be miserable. Go all in on your relationship with Jesus if you're in that place. I'll also say this, you know, nothing makes me weep like the kindness of Jesus. And I love Peter's story because like you, I know what it's like to have the Lord look at me right in the eyes when I'm caught in my sin. We all know that feeling. But I also know, and here's why we shouldn't be harsh with Peter. I also know there have been far too many times when unlike Peter, my reaction has not been immediate repentance. That's what's impressive to me about Peter. There's immediate repentance from him. Contrition, genuine repentance. And there's been far too many times when Jesus has looked at me, caught me in my sin, and I've said, I'm just gonna keep doing it. And I've hardened my heart. Psalm 95 says, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, it's a precious thing to hear the voice of the Lord. That's a precious thing. Even when you hear the voice of the Lord correcting you, that's a precious thing to say, I have heard the voice of the Lord. For the God of the universe to care enough about you to speak into your life a word of warning that you might be spared pain and hurt, that is a precious thing. And so we should respond when the Lord speaks to us that way. So if he's doing that in your life right now, if he's speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Repent, repent. A God who loves you is speaking to you and attempting to call you out of pain and hurt. Make sure you take communion today. Make sure you take communion today. You're forgiven. That's something to be thankful for. And if you've been carrying any type of guilt or shame about your past sins, you can walk out of here today in a level of freedom that you might not have experienced for a long time. If you will allow those past failures to instead remind you that you're forgiven and you have a Jesus who went to the cross for you. And if you need to just confess those sins to Jesus again and thank him that he's forgiven you and you'll find freedom, I promise. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus and for his love for us, for his compassion for us that when Peter was tested and tried, 
Jesus didn't say, let's see how it goes. Maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Jesus, thank you that you love us and you care for us that deeply. Thank you that you speak to us and call us into life and call us away from the paths and choices and attitudes that will lead us to destruction. Help us to listen to you. Thank you for caring about us. But most of all, Jesus, thank you that we are a forgiven people. We are a forgiven people. We belong to you and we are defined not by our moments of greatest failure or greatest sin. We are defined by the love for us that you displayed on the cross. We are defined by the fact that we're forgiven and we've been brought into the family of God. So Father, we just confess for, for every past sin, every failure, we are completely guilty, completely guilty. And we agree with you by confessing that we are completely forgiven. That your work on the cross is greater than our sin, past, present, and future. That statement will be true tomorrow, the next day, a year from now, 10 years from now. And when we take our last breath on this earth, it will still be true that the cross is greater than our sin. We believe it and we stand in it and we're thankful for it, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.